In the beginning, there was not one universe, but many. With many worlds almost exactly like Earth. Here to report on those many worlds is the Multiversal News with Greg Leinweber. Hello, everyone. This is Greg Leinweber, and I have a very special guest here, Nancy Crest. Uh, she's the author of many uh, prize award-winning science fiction books, and uh, she's here to talk about her work, how she does it, and uh, some of the stuff that she's working on in the future, and what she's done recently. And of course, I've got many questions to ask her about many of the books she's written in the past, because I've read a whole lot of them, including uh, uh, Princess Bells uh, at the very beginning. But let's let's uh, say hello to Nancy Chris. Nancy, how do you do? It's uh, very nice to have you on here. It's good to be here. Uh, well, I, I guess the very first question I should ask you is, um, what made you decide to move to Seattle? Uh, I married recently, and I had we had spent a couple years flying back and forth, which is both expensive and inconvenient. So eventually, I moved from Rochester, New York, to Seattle, which is a much different kind of city, and I like it very much. Wow. Well, I, I'm glad that we got you here. I, as someone, I've read so many of your books in the past because you're one of those authors I just liked so much when I first started reading uh, because uh, you seem to have a, be very good at hooking the audience in uh, uh, very quickly on in, in the book and keeping the audience uh, tied together. To, what is, how do you manage to um, do that? Do you focus on that very much uh, when you're writing a book? Are you, are you trying to tell a tale, or are you, are you keeping in consciously in mind how to keep the audience uh, attached, or do you focus on that? I think any writer has to do all of those things at once. Um, writers, to some degree, are all schizophrenic. We're actually three different people, my personality. You're the writer who's putting down the words on the paper and keeping in mind the plot and the flow of the story. You are the character that you are writing about. You become that person. You become almost mystically identified with them. Or if you don't like the mysticism idea, then you can think of it as the method acting, where an actor tries to get into the character. But you're also the reader, looking over your shoulder and thinking, hmm, what's going to happen next? And you have to pretend that you don't know what's going to happen next in order to be the reader. You have to pretend that you're not sure what's going to happen next in order to be the character. And you have to know what's going to happen next in order to be the writer. So it's kind of a mental balancing act that's not unlike mental illness. Wow, that's very interesting. Well, let me ask you another thing. Uh, do these characters, do they ever talk to you uh, when uh, you're writing? Do they ever try to get you to change the story for their benefit? or? For me, one of the best moments in writing is when the character takes over the story and just runs with it. Now, I had a conversation once with Connie Willis, a, a, a very well-known science fiction writer, about this. And we were on a panel discussing this very topic. And I said that I love the moment when a character seizes the plot and runs off without my knowing what's going to happen. And she said, wait, 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 Nancy. They can't seize the plot. You made them up. They can't run off without you knowing what they're going to do. You invented them. And all I can say is, although that's literally true, that's not the way it feels. <laughs> it feels like these people have solidity and 
form of their own and that they can take over the writing and you can just go with it. Yeah, I know. I, well, that, that's definitely true. And I, I've noticed that uh, as an aspect, your characters are always tend to be very complex. And um, sometimes they struggle with their own minds or their own uh, desires themselves. You can almost feel that in them. And that's, that's what I gives your stories a kind of rich context. Well, thank you. Um, I think fiction is about characters. It's about people. I know that not all writers, and especially not all science fiction writers, agree. There tends to be a whole group of science fiction writers that think it's mostly about the nifty idea, or the technology, or the advance in science, or the adventure plot, or the shoot em off, head em off at the next nebula and shoot em up. And all of those things can be elements of fiction, but it has to come down to the people. If I'm not interested in the characters in a book that I'm reading, I don't read it. And if I'm not interested in the characters in the book I'm writing, I stop writing it. I, it's about the people. Yeah. Well, that uh, I've noticed that the characters are strong in your book, but I also have noticed that the science that you put behind the book has a lot of thought to it, that you do have a, a strong component that, uh, that pushes the story. Like, especially in problems. Probability Moon had a lot of uh, physics uh, involved in it, uh, unlike Beggars in Space, which had a lot of genetics and, and biology put into it. I borrow my physics, and I borrow my genetics. I don't okay. have a science background. I, in fact, I never even took chemistry. In high school, chemistry conflicted with French 4, so I took French 4 instead, and now I can't speak French or do chemistry. <laughs> what I do do is I research. I read books for the probability series. I relied very heavily on Brian Greene's terrific books, The Fabric of the Universe, The Fabric of the Cosmos, and The Elegant Universe, and especially his advocation of string theory. And I read those books and reread them. I made notes in the margin. I underlined them. I made pages and pages of notes on a yellow pad. Because what I wanted to do in those books was invent a fifth force in the universe. We've already got gravity. Yeah and electromagnetic and the weak and the strong force in the nucleus. I wanted to invent a fifth one, and I did. The fifth one is probability. Because consider, Greg, if we say there's a 12% chance that some physical phenomenon will happen, for instance, that radioactive element will decay in a certain way, what do we mean when we say there's a 12% chance? Why 12? Why not 60 or 2? So I decided that could be an actual force that we haven't yet discovered with its own particle, the way that the others have messenger particles, yeah. that has mass and spin. I worked at the whole thing. It was very hard because my mind does not work very well in these. And after yeah. that, I had a headache for two days. Wow. Wow. And it really paid off, too, because it came off pretty convincing in the book. I remember the physicist, uh, and having read the book myself, like I said, the physicist really struggled with this. I think uh, you were talking about uh, being a physicist was like being in love. You know, you're searching for that. That woman, you <laughs> see a hint of her, you chase after her, hoping to, to see her face again, and and you're and you're writing the the, the mathematics to try to uh, bring that about. That you remember my books better than I do. Well that was several <laughs> novels ago, and I have forgotten well, it. Uh, they had a big impact on me, no, no doubt, and they probably affected my own writing to some degree too. Although I don't write nearly as prolifically as you do. Now, and beggars in Spain. You did a lot of work on genetics, too, and I don't want to focus on just the hard stuff. I, I, I want to talk more about characters later, but in the, I remember one particular moment in gen, uh, that the genetic poly, pol, uh, in the politics of the situation, 
uh, first of all, there was a, a, a certain uh, group of um, the poorest people that were afflicted, afflicted by this genetic strain that caused them to have a mental illness that wanted to stay alone in their, their rooms and not talk to anyone. That was kind of strange to think that there is a biological chemical twist that could cause the brain to do that. Oh, the, there is. I mean, there yeah. are, the, we're partly creatures of electromagnetic impulses, partly creatures of chemical processes, and perhaps creatures of some X factor, spiritual, that goes beyond those two. Although I don't, I'm getting more into the last, that last in my later books. Oh, I see. But in Beggars in Spain, I was concerned with the politics more than the science in that book. That's what I want to talk about next. <laughs> yeah, it, it has a very political um, question that it wants yeah. to ask. At the time I wrote that, my sons, one was in college and one was in high school. And as the years went on, those of their friends that had gone on to college and gotten some kind of technical training were usually able to find jobs that were decently paid. But a lot of their friends did not. They finished at high school and they were kind of drifting. Because we're in the kind of society now where, especially with the latest recession, it's more difficult for people who don't have a highly specific and trained profession to find work. Yes. And what I wanted That's to true. ask was, in a decent society, what do the haves owe the have-nots? If I'm managing okay financially, what do I owe the person on the corner who isn't? What do I owe the homeless? Do I owe them anything? And there were two poles that I was working off of. One was Anne Rand's objectivism, yep. um, where she says, no, you don't owe anything to them. That's their problem, and everyone should be using his own abilities for his own life. The other end was Ursula K. Le Guin, a writer whom I absolutely think walks on water. I love her, yes. Her novel, The Dispossessed, where all property has been abolished because she feels that that's the root of most crime. And it's a, an anarchic, propertyless society. I wasn't satisfied with either of these answers. The Rand one was to me. Yeah. And the Le Guin one seemed too idealistic yeah, to actually come about. Yes. So I was still left with the question, what do the haves owe the have-nots? And the Beggars in Spain trilogy is an attempt to find an answer to that. Well, one thing, uh, the striking features of Beggars in Spain that I thought was really interesting was that uh, there was still a democracy. And the, uh, the, there were two, three classes actually, but the, uh, the mules were part of the middle class. They're very wealthy, but uh, they were out there trying to get votes from people. So they placated the very poor. The poor were given foam cast buildings and robots to take care of them so they could have lives of leisure as long as they got their vote, which was an interesting development because you keep thinking, okay, what, there's, there's something about the society that's not quite, these people are just being placated. They're not given a chance to, to educate themselves or something, you know? And, and uh, I was thinking to myself, well, this could really happen. This, this is something It has happened. Develop. It's based on Rome providing dreaded circuses. But you can also ah. say that it's happening now as well. Yes, in that we have large numbers of politicians, not all, but large numbers, who are interested mostly in securing um, earmarked projects for their particular areas yeah. to keep their people happy and placated, but not necessarily looking overall at the good of the republic. And, and you went and took it that further step where 
robots do all the production work and all the work, and there's no workers anymore. So they're being ultimately placated to an extent that, that, that we don't have right now. That's why you have only a small middle class that runs the factories and runs the robots. Yeah, the, and the again, humans. this yeah. is something we're also moving towards now as we automate more factories. My father was able, and his father, were both able to work in factories and then moving slowly into the middle class without a college education yeah. and able to send children to college to buy a house, to buy two cars, to do the American dream. Now that we don't have this solid base of manufacturing jobs that underlay that economy, we are, that dream is becoming farther, receding farther and farther away from a lot of people. Yeah. And even though I wrote Beggars in Spain 20 years ago, there are parts of it, I think, that are still relevant. Oh, yes, it is very relevant. Now, you received a Hugo Prize for Beggars in Spain? or For the novelization. It was first yeah. a novella, and then from a novella it became a novel, and then it became a trilogy because there was more story, more story, more story. I know. It's a yes. fantastic <laughs> story, and I really did like it for all the many reasons because it was so – not only the characters had personal conflicts, like Leisha, the, the, the lead character – but the, the self was in conflict. The, the milieu was kind of a weird kind of uh, subtle conflict because it seemed like society was stable in every way, but the conflict was there, just waiting to brew up. We don't like to admit that in the United States we have class conflict, but of course we do. Oh, of course and we do. And that's what that book yeah. is basically placed on. We have little multiverses right within the economy <laughs> yes, and we within do. the situation. Just like you have multiverses for your show here. Uh, yes, I do. And, and my multiverses, I try to point out the logical extensions of doing something one way or another. In other words, having uh, the uh, I have uh, uh, one uh, u universe, one parallel earth where it's a worker's paradise, where it's everybody's in a union and uh, work is uh, uh, the, 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 work, uh, the uh, workers together themselves decide what they're going to work for, what they're going to make, and who they're going to make it for, which, by the way, uh, might or might work depending on the situation. It's certainly not going to work within the framework of a police state like the Soviet Union. It, it can't. Police states just simply can't work. But never mind. I don't, let's not delve well, into politics science too much. fiction is a thought experiment. It, it's, yes. it's a chance to set up something, whether it's uh, a different political system yeah or whether it's an economic question, or whether it's a change in genetic engineering, which is basically what Beggars in Spain is about, and to say, okay, if this happened, if this existed, what would be the implications? What would be the consequences? Yeah. And what does that say ultimately about the human condition? Now, our, and, uh, some of your, let's talk about some of your recent books, because I haven't had a chance to read them, and I know that you want people to buy these books. Uh, do you carry out more of a, a political background for uh, some of your other books that, uh, that um, you're Not so much. Steel Across the Sky is my most recent science fiction novel. And it, it deals with aliens uh -huh. and also with genetic engineering. The basic setup is this. Aliens come to the solar system, build a base on the moon, and announce that 10,000 years ago they committed a terrible crime against humanity, and they are here to atone for it. However, they're not going to tell us what it is. Oh. What they wanted what? to do instead, they want seven teams of three young people each to be taken in their spaceships to other colonized planets to observe and then come back and report on what this crime was and what the consequences are. 
The aliens are figuring if they have where we have our own people actually see with their own eyes, it will carry a lot more weight. Oh, I see. However, they get millions of applications all around the world. Well, of I mean, course. I'd you? like to do it. Would of you? course. I want to go see what the big crime was. Would you volunteer to get into an alien spaceship and oh, go yeah. somewhere else? Not not positive you'd ever come back. Hey, Darren, you want to go to another planet and report <laughs> on the multiversal news? I would love to go to another yeah. planet and report on the multiversal news. Okay. Unfortunately, I'm working with the street right now. Yeah, well. <laughs> not only that. And, uh, and the audience. Okay. Well, they get to bring back some small artifacts. But, however, they don't see what they expect to see, and when they come back, things don't work out the way they expected. Oh. And I'm not going to tell you more than that because I think you should read the novel. Oh, well, I'm going to. I can, now I'm intrigued. I want to know what this crime was and how they could get away with this for so long. <laughs> well, 10,000 years ago, we were just, remember, we were just emerged roaming bands on the savannah. Right, well, it isn't like well, we could put up much of a right resistance. That was right after the, the Ice Age. Yeah, we yeah. didn't had hardly any technology, yet we had those pyramids built. Now, does that... Not does then. This, later this, than that. Does this crime have something to do with how those pyramids got the built? The pyramids are later than 10,000 years ago. Are they? Yeah. Now, there's some dispute about that. I've read some well, crack nothing to do with it. Nothing to do with them. <laughs> no pyramids. Well, Forget the pyramids, Greg. No pyramids. Okay, no pyramids are, are not involved with the story. Right. Well, that's that's okay. That's cool. That's that's. Um, now I'm going to ask you a question, and uh, I'm going to see if you can figure out what this is. Do you know what my favorite book of yours is? And I love political intrigue, and the abuse of power, and those are my tens. And this is a book I haven't t discussed with you yet. I've written 26 books. Okay. Um, and they kind of, after a while, you probably remember more about some of them than I do. That's true. Abuse of power, I have that in a lot of books. Uh, that's true. Political okay. intrigue, I have that in a lot of books. That's true. Is it Batteries in Space? Uh, no. It's, uh, uh, no, actually, this one's called Oats and, and Miracles. Oats and Miracles. Oh, I'm so pleased. I wrote two biothrillers, that one and its sequel, Stinger. Yeah. Oh, and it's got a sequel? It does, with Robert Cavanaugh again. I didn't know that. And I like it better than Oats and Miracles. Oh, my God. All right. got to go to the bookstore. Uh, <laughs> I, I'll, I'll, I'll get that one. I can't believe that. You had wrote a sequel to yeah. that one. I, I, I but this slipped my uh, uh, notice completely. Anyway. There, here's the problem with those books, though. Um, yeah. They were reviewed extremely well. Yeah. But they're thrillers. They're not really sci classic science fiction. They're thrillers. Mm, well, but because close, my though. name was on them, yeah. they were shelved with the science fiction. Yeah. Science fiction readers were not happy because they wanted aliens and mm, spaceships. Ray guns, Thriller whatever. readers never found them because they were in the science fiction section. Yeah. And this is a problem with contemporary publishing yeah. for, for writers. They well, get put in little boxes, yeah. Yeah. and then you have to stay in your little box. Well, I, it had your name on it. And I'd already liked Beggars and Spain. When I read this one, I was so impressed with it and, and kind of scared, too. Cause well, go read Stinger. Yeah. That one oh, is supposed okay. to scare you more. Yeah, even. well, okay. For, let, let me get briefly tell the audience about what I thought got from the book. This was really cool because uh, there's this, a special thing. Mob is involved with this. The big uh, the mob is uh, going out and, and uh, threatening court just One of the greatest moments in the book is when uh, some of the prosecutors are sitting around uh, wondering how the mob is going to bump off the next judge because they directly tailored a disease uh, that would kill only one specific person. And that's what, what I really found impressive was that you could it's think of this. Well, I'll, I'll tell you, when I was doing the advanced research for this, the science, you have in your cells something called the MHC complex. 
and it is completely individual, as individual as your fingerprints. Wow. So what happens is this virus is tailored to be passed um, along with, a, with a, a rhinovirus, a cold virus. Yeah. It gets passed from person to person to person, and it just doesn't do anything except give them the cold until yeah. it gets to the person whose complex it was tailored to, and then it's fake. Bam, you're dead. Okay. Oh, God, that's, that's a mob hit you can't When I was doing research, I was between marriages, and oh, I was dating okay. an oncologist. Okay. And I said to him one day, would you look at these notes? This is before I wrote the book. Yeah. I said, I'm going to lay it all out, and I want you to tell me if I'm making a fool of myself. I just want to yeah. show you what I've done research on the cells and how I think this might work and how it might be transmitted and what the vector might be for the retrovirus. And I went through the whole thing. It took about 10 minutes. I showed him all my diagrams. And then I said, okay, tell me. Am I going to make a complete fool of myself if I do this? Is it <laughs> so wildly implausible yeah. that it's going to look stupid in print? Uh -huh. And he looked at me, and he said, maybe the single scariest sentence I've ever heard. He said, I think this could be dangerous. Uh, in reality. In reality. Oh, good. You just went ahead and gave the mob <laughs> this great idea on how to well, kill us all. Well, as you all. know, the mob is not usually into biotech firms. One of the th reasons that the FBI not in yet. this firm, in this book, is interested well, they is because... Well, before you gave them the it, idea. It's out of their usual field of expertise, which yeah. tends to go towards drugs, extortion, prostitution, yeah, and gambling. The, the easy stuff, yeah. Yeah, it doesn't tend to go towards biotech firms. Well, first of all, i got to hire a biotech guy, have him do this stuff, then threaten to kill him if he doesn't... Uh, Don't give him away my whole plot. Well, okay, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Well, I, I, my apologies. Uh, folks, disregard what I said, and please, <laughs> members of the mob, I'm just kidding, okay? And uh, Forget about it. Yeah, okay, all right. Uh, you're not in with them, are you? But, uh, no, but my mother was Sicilian. Oh, really? Hey, you know, I've got some people that I would like <laughs> to have done away with. I don't know if you... Okay. My people will talk to your people. Okay, good. Okay. Hey, Darren, we've got some uh, extra added benefits from this that we'll discuss <laughs> later. Shh. Hush, hush, okay? All right. Anyway, uh, af af after we get past this, there's some other stuff I want to talk about. With some of your earlier works, I read, a, what was it, Prince of Morning Bells? Yes, that was my very first novel. I, I thought that was a really cool book because of the surprise ending. You know, you have this talking dog that goes and hangs out with this lady who says he's a, uh, a prince, you know, and uh, and that's uh, really interesting. He has a curse cast on him, and um, and the book itself, um, the earlier works seem to be more like Greek tragedies in some cases. I don't want to give away the ending exactly, but they, they weren't exactly happy endings, but they were very poignant. They, they struck to my, my, my heart, you know. I mean, they, oh, they thank you. I almost never write completely happy endings, and I almost never write complete downers either. Yeah. Because it seems to me that life is usually a mixture. Yeah. And Good that's point. what I try for in my fiction. Yeah, that's the way my life has been. I've had my bad moments, and it's probably going to end well either. So uh, I'm almost, almost like a character. It never ends well. <laughs> it never ends well. I'm like a character in one of your books, it seems like. But <laughs> that's why I liked it so much. It felt so real. And was why it was so much fun to read some of your stuff. Uh, what kind of advice would you give to any aspiring writer out there that you haven't already? You have to write. I teach all the time. I yeah. teach at Clarion. I teach at Taos Toolbox. Um, Clarion is a six weeks intensive workshop yeah. for aspiring science fiction writers here in Seattle. 
Taos is a two-week version in Taos, New Mexico. And I teach at Hugo House, which is right around the corner from where we're sitting right now. Oh, really? Okay. Um, usually an evening class. I teach a lot all the time because I like it. Oh. And because writers spend a lot of time at their desks surrounded by people who don't exist. And every once in a while, it's nice to go out <laughs> and be among the living. <laughs> so I teach all the time. Yeah. And what I see among young writers, and not so young, is that they're not writing enough. Yeah. They're talking about writing. They are reading books about writing. Yeah. They are reading books other people have written. And all of this is good. But there is no substitute for actually doing it. If you were going to learn to ride a bicycle, you could look at films about how to ride a bicycle and read books about how to ride a bicycle endlessly, but eventually you have to get on the damn bicycle and start yeah. pedaling. Yeah. And you don't wait for inspiration either. Supposing you wanted to be a professional concert pianist, yeah. you would be there. You wouldn't only practice Rachmaninoff when you were felt inspired. Yeah, you would right. be doing it every day. Yeah, you got to get in the habit of doing it. If you want to yeah. be a professional writer, arrange your life so that you write every day, even if it's only for 15 minutes. Yeah, and, and even if you, you write something that you think is pretty much crap, you write it anyway because right. it, 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 that, that helps, See, even if uh, – you're, you're writing something that, that doesn't think you're ever going to be able to do anything with it. And I've done that before, believe me. Well, the problem there is the decision that it's crap. Maybe it is. Yeah. Well. But when you write, you have to turn off your inner editor. No, well, that's usually what I do, and that's why it, uh, <laughs> it's... It's crap. <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah. Well, no, that's not a bad thing necessarily, because uh, the, the only time I can find out if it's good or not is if I let other people read it and then... When they don't get back to me, that's when I know it's not any good because they, they couldn't finish it. Well, that's the ultimate it. test for all of us is yeah. the other readers, starting with yeah. editors. <laughs> yeah, now if they come back and say, you know, that really wasn't all that good, that's a lot better than not hearing anything at all because yeah. at least they they're the reason they're coming back, because whenever they say it wasn't really all that good, there's always a, however, there was that one thing that made me want to get back and talk to you about it, obviously, but I, I don't know. It's, it all depends. Have have you ever uh, written something yourself and, and had to put it aside because you just couldn't make anything out? Oh, my God, yes. Um, oh, like okay. everybody else, when I started out, I sent out stories, and they came back with form rejections, and yeah. I sent them out again, and they came back again. Oh, and this okay. went on for a long time. Wow. And even now, I will have editors, not usually short fiction anymore, but they'll reject novel proposals or they won't like the opening of a novel. A novel is a big gamble for yeah, oh yeah. a publisher. Yeah, especially when you Although e-books are starting to change this. Yeah. Oh, okay. All right. Now that uh, we've had our, our lesson in writing, I w there's a one book that I've always wanted to ask more about, and that was Alien Life. Uh, this was another example of a well-developed uh, alien species, not so much for their biologicalness, but they were so alien their attitude and behavior and their inability to understand the, the humans. The humans themselves uh, act in remarkable fashions under stress that the aliens put them into. Which well, I, I the aliens in that book, which was my first science fiction novel as opposed to fantasy, yeah. have very little genetic diversity. Yeah. They are essentially almost all the same. And mm. as a result, they don't have a lot of inventiveness because what one person has thought of, everybody else has already thought of, too. And their society, the only reason they got as far as star travel is that they've been around much longer than we are because they evolved around a cooler star. So they've been around much, much longer. But they are astonished that we would fight with each other. 
they are astonished by the phenomenon of human violence because they're not violent against each other because they're all yeah. the same. It'd be like being violent against your real mom. Yeah. So or they come to Earth and try to set up a, a situation, an artificial situation, where they can study two cultures in conflict because they don't understand us at all. Our psychology yeah. is completely baffling to and, them. And that's really interesting how that starts to break down, too. It does. And in un unexpected ways. So I suggest to you, if you want to see that happen, read the book, of course. I, I, we don't want to give away a surprise ending, which, you know, I can't seem to remember the ending to that one. Now, that is not good. When you can't remember yeah. the ending <laughs> to one of my books, that is a very bad sign for the book. <laughs> Actually, no. Uh, I've, I enjoyed that book thoroughly, and uh, I'm... I wouldn't read too much into that. That I've, like, you know, I had to make room for some Dallas Cowboy football scores. I think at one point. Ah, the important that. stuff. Well, yeah, that, uh, and and uh, I don't know. I, I have little. I don't know how my mind works, but yeah, there, there. Sometimes I forget things, and I, I really don't read too much into it. <laughs> please. Uh, uh, do you have a sequel? How much time we got left up there? Uh, it's. About, tw about 20 minutes. Oh, man, we got lots of time for me to pick your mind about old stories. Um, now, what is it that you're working on right now? I'm working on a YA science fiction, young adult yeah. science um, novel really? set in the very near future, and it deals with a bizarre reality television show. And I'm not going to tell you what the bizarre show is or what the characters do or how they get involved in this. Not even a little bit? No, no, okay. no. It's called Flashpoint. Okay. And it's I'm in I'm on the third draft, so it's not done quite yet. Okay. Uh, well, that doesn't leave us very much to talk about. Um, now, uh, uh, on let's see, there, you have another book that comes before Steel Across the Sky, and I didn't read that one either. Which, which, what was the name of that book? Well, the one immediately before then was a collection of short stories. Nano ah. comes to Clifford Falls because I published four okay. collections of, of short stories. Okay. Uh, do you, how, how do you feel about writing short stories? I prefer it, Greg. Really? I, if I could make a li my favorite length is a novella. Ah, I see. And in fact, almost all my awards have been won for novelette or novella fiction, yeah. um, rather than for either very short or very long. And and there's a reason for this. A novella, which is somewhere between roughly twenty and forty thousand words, is long enough so that you can develop a different environment or a different world or a future but it's short enough that you only need one plot thread yeah. to go through. You don't need a lot of subplots. Yeah. And in some ways, it's the perfect length for science fiction. Much of the Philip K. Dick movies that have been made, Minority Report and Blade yeah. Runner, were developed from novellas or novelettes, not yeah. from full-length well, novels. That's, that's right. A full-length novel would be like uh, yeah. eight, six to eight hours of film, and you can't really yeah. do that. That's why Dune was such a, a terrible movie. They yes. cut too much out of yeah, it. Yeah, they couldn't, they couldn't do it. Yeah. And what they're doing right now with George R. R. Martin's fantasy series on HBO, Game of Thrones, they've aired four episodes so far, and they're only halfway through the first uh, novel. Wow. So it's <laughs> Good job. That <laughs> was a smart move. You take a long time to, yeah. to do it properly. So novella, and another example, Flowers for Algernon, yeah. was originally a short story, and that's what the movie Charlie came from. Well, now here's a follow-up question right here. Which of your books do you think would translate best over the film? It's one that came out from a small press a few years ago, and it's called Dogs. Mm -hmm. And it's about uh, a virus that develops, again, a brain virus among dogs. Think rabies, but oh it has yeah. a different effect than rabies. What it does is it turns 
even very flaccid dogs, vicious. It attacks the amygdala part of brain, which is the part of the brain, um, including yours, that controls yeah. primitive emotions. Right. And so you have all of these pet that. dogs yeah. that suddenly will turn on their owners and bite, and especially they attack children because they're smaller. Yeah. Now, as soon as this virus starts to spread in a small town in Maryland called Ty Maryland that I've invented, the FEMA is called in, they throw a cordon around it, and they start winding up all of the dogs because they don't know which ones are infected and which are not. Okay, when I started writing this, it was a time of the avian flu in Asia. Oh, and it's uh -huh. one thing to kill a billion chickens in India, or it's another thing to ask Americans to the surrender Fido pet dogs, when yeah. they aren't even showing any symptoms yet because oh they might be affected. Oh, my God. And Talk about a firestorm. Yes, and this small town is on the border of West Virginia. A lot of people are armed in yeah. that part of the world, and a lot of people object strongly to the government in that part of the world. And I've always thought this would make a very good movie. Oh, yeah. Boy, talk about conflict. You're talking about taking people's yeah. pet dogs away. My God, they'd rather give up on their firstborn than a dog in some well, cases. you know, it's strange. You can kill any number of people in novels. But, yeah. boy, you start knocking off dogs. I had three different publishers turn this book down and <laughs> say the same thing. They said, we really You'll like never this, but we, it, the content is going to offend dog lovers. We can't publish it. And you want to make a movie out of it. I, <laughs> I said, you can wipe out entire town's worth of people, and you can't touch it. You can't touch Rex. I know, I know. And they said, no, you can't. Yeah, that's, that's people so feel I was getting discouraged about, about this, and my son had a suggestion, not very helpful. He said, well, why don't you make the virus transmitted by gerbils? Instead. Yeah. But, you know, rounding up and getting rid of the gerbils just doesn't have the same effect. Yeah. No. So d when when you did your research for the book, you studied the amygdala of, and of animals and people. Yes. Too. I had a show uh, about that for uh, an alternate universe where the amygdala was the whole brain, but the amygdala itself diversified to create the different portions of the brain. But, uh -huh. uh, yeah, uh, these are uh, the peace-loving... Uh, dinosaurs that created a uh, the, the the amygdala developed and grew and grew and grew in size and began to diversify itself within itself and uh, they became so peaceful that they didn't have any really uh, uh, there's no focus for an amygdala now also this relates to a, a scientific discovery they did in England a, a talk show host in England um, uh, dared the scientists to do some comparisons of conservatives and liberals to see how uh, what their brain differences was, and he was shocked to discover that with conservatives, they had enlarged, bigger amygdalas. And uh, I talked about <laughs> the, I know, I know. Insert joke here, folks, and you can talk about it. I think I'm not going to touch this topic. <laughs> I know. Well, this just goes to show you, Republicans are all a bunch of fearful Nazi boys. That's what's driving the Republican Party. Now, see, you feel you can say this because we're sitting here in yeah. a van on Capitol Hill in Seattle. Which right. is in bulletproof glass youth. case. <laughs> it's a very youthful and very liberal area. Right. And therefore, he feels safe in doing yeah, this. Yes, that's right. Now, I you, do you go on over to Kirkland or, mm. or Bellevue and say the same thing. <laughs> I would, but that's because I'm crazy. I'm, I'm, Better yet, you go over to Spokane oh, and the yeah. eastern part of the I state. I know. I'll get say. chased out of that town like they chased me out of Texas. <laughs> so. 
Okay, well, anyway, I, I, I don't want to dwell too much on this. It's a fun topic to t talk about, but, you know, it's really fun. The, the funnest thing ab about science fiction is doing the research and, and learning something about uh, genetics and the brain and physics and stuff. As, do you find that to be kind of fascinating? Uh, I, it's interesting to me, yeah. but I, it isn't for me the most fascinating part. Again, we started the interview, and I'm going to loop back to it yeah. by saying that the characters, characters. are more interesting and to me. That is fun but if you want to talk about it. But I do the do the science. Yeah. I, I do it as carefully as I can. Although people who read science fiction for the science, once my daughter-in-law said to me what may have been one of the scariest sentences I've ever heard, which is, you know, all the science I know I learned from your books. Uh-oh. And I said, Jamie, <laughs> you realize, Jamie, that I make some of this up, a lot of it up. <laughs> you know? Oh, man, that is scary. Yes. <laughs> I would hate to think people would like be studying science from my movie, Hookers in Space. That would be a terrible way to, to learn about science. But no, uh, unfortunately, I didn't have a whole lot of science in that. It, 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 now, how do you do research for a, a characters for your characters? D is this something that just wells up inside of you? or The science I can research. I, yeah. I subscribe to those magazines that are aimed at the layperson, yeah, right. and I talk to Discovery, scientists. Discovery, et cetera. Yeah. Yes, and I talk to scientists. I collect microbiologists the way some people collect butterflies. Yes. Um, I can call them up or send them an email. And That's what help. I'm trying to do on the show. I'm trying yeah. to get more scientists to come on the show to talk about this so they I can... Have you considered yeah. pinning them to a board like butterflies? Maybe that would help. Uh, well, I don't know. Could I see your collection? Maybe <laughs> I could could I borrow a few? <laughs> for researching characters, though, I, I don't do that. Yeah. You, To some extent, every character writer creates is some aspect of the author because all you yeah. really have is what's inside you. That's a big statement coming from you. That's sort of like uh, you're bragging a little bit. No, no. I everybody has them. If you're yeah. going to create a murderer, for instance, you've never committed murder. At least yeah. I hope you have never committed murder. Not that anyone knows of that. But you've been mad enough, angry enough to want to kill somebody. Absolutely. And what writers do is they reach in for that part of them that was that angry yeah. in order to create a murderer. So everything that you write comes from you. You pull yeah. it up somewhere from yeah. inside yourself because that's all that you really have. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, and I'm as complex as, as uh, just about anyone. We all are. Yeah. Everyone. Are. Yeah. And we all have got that Even capacity. the Republicans. Yes, they are. And uh, I, I find that, that I think that, I, that we need Republicans in our society just like we need our own darker nature within us. We, <laughs> you know, I'm not saying that that Republicans are dark in nature per se. Do you realize you might have just, you know, alienated half of your audience? Oh, I've been doing this for months and months. <laughs> you have no, just watch any of my shows and you'll know that I've been doing this. Uh, I've 90%, 90%, 90, yes. 90, 90%. That's the tax oh, rate I'm pushing for. Oh, I see. <laughs> <laughs> for the top 1%, of course. Uh, okay. This is a special tax just for the very wealthy, but never mind. Well, I'm... I'm hoping to hire some cheerleaders to be the 90% cheerleaders. Uh, but that's, uh, you're not interested in that job. No, I think I'm a little old for cheerleading. Well, and I was never very coordinated. Were, were you a, a, a cheerleader in high school? Of course not. No, science okay. fiction writers are not <laughs> cheerleaders. Science fiction writers are the nerdy geeks yeah. who join the chess club and the literary magazine were and things like that. Were you in the chess club? I was. And the literary magazine. That's the kind of thing that Were, were you uh, in an actress in high school? No. No, no my okay. sister is the actress. Ah, I see. Well, yeah. I, your sister sounds like an interesting person, too. What's she is. Uh, but uh, what 
Oh, let's talk about her real quickly. What What is she working on right now? Is she in a play or in a? In a um, or, or right now, she's going around doing auditions for summer stock okay. because that's what happens when you're an actress in New York. And you need work. You yeah. need work. It's a very difficult life. It's a different life from being a writer. A writer has all these things that are reselling, whereas an actress, it's a next gig. Well, I think That's the best counts. thing about being a writer in that sense is that we can do our work. We don't need permission to work. Yeah. We then have right. to sell it afterwards, but yeah. we can do the work. Kate, my sister, can't work until somebody hires her. Yeah, I know. Until somebody like us gives her a broad job. Like, we oh. write the, the scripts for her to act in. Well, not you particularly, but writers in general. We create the stories that the actors act in. I've met a lot of really great actors from having tried to produce movies and stuff before, and I've, I'm always gratified when an actor can bring one of my characters to life so well. Um, it's almost like what you do on, on when you work on a, in a book, but for you, you do everything. You're in control of your entire asset all along. Yeah, and I that's mean, another reason yeah. I would make a very bad actress. I, I like <laughs> to be in control. I'm not a team player. And oh, I don't okay. really think I would want to take direction and work like that in, in a group. Well, what are you talking about? That's what every Hollywood starlet is like. They're all like that. You look and think about your Lindsay Lohans and stuff. They're control freaks that go around throwing their weight around. They don't take direction either. Never mind, I was a cheap shot. It okay. was a cheap shot, yes. <laughs> she was very good in um, the movie that was based on, it was the only thing I saw her in, on Garrison Keillor's Prairie Home Companion. Oh, she's got a lot of great talent. I, I saw her in Freaky Friday, and I was amazed that she could be the mom for that brief amount of I time. I didn't see that. Oh, yeah, well, she takes the place of, uh, she has the, the soul of Jamie Lee Curtis goes into Lindsay Lohan, and Jamie Lee Curtis starts to act like Lindsay. And I think Lindsay did the better job of acting in that part. I love movies, but I don't like most science fiction movies. Yeah. And oh, the, that's interesting. And that's the reason I don't is they always go for the flashy effects. Yeah. And they ignore both character development and, more important, they don't make sense. Yeah. Oh, that really pisses me off, too. Yeah, I agree. Moon, yeah. the w although I thought the acting was good and there was a lot of money spent in creating this, yeah. it's a stupid plot. Nobody yeah. is going to, in order to get somebody to control, to do mining on the moon, create clones and, and false um, videos of their family on Earth and then <laughs> jammers up there so they don't <laughs> see the real thing. a lot of you work. You hire three guys and give them hazard pay. You yeah. would get all yeah. kinds of volunteers. Or enslave them. It's a Put stupid a plot. You don't yeah. even have to enslave them. Give a yeah. couple of construction workers hazard <laughs> pay and they'll go up and do it. Oh, hell yeah. It's People a stupid, stupid yeah, plot. Yeah, I know, I know. There's, there's a lot of real... You see this in science fiction a lot. That's true. But there is good, well-written science fiction. They don't film you know. a lot of it. No, they don't. I, that's why I uh, uh, would recommend Babylon 5. There was some definitely good writing there and great character development, too. Uh, when you see the characters uh, in action, some of the aliens, I, th I think you'd be impressed. But don't take my word for it. I mean, if you don't want to watch it, that's fine. I, I should watch you. it because I missed it. You did. Well, I... The, it starts off pretty well. It, it doesn't really take you in as fast as like one of your novels might. If you give it a chance after about four or five of the, the first series, I think you'd be impressed. At, in the second and third year, they the ball really starts rolling and the overriding arc starts to take over and it, it really uh, uh, picks up a lot of steam. Okay. But you never know, mind. This right here, this setup is very science fictional. 
Oh, this uh, this thing. The yeah, I don't know if, if the people watching this show are aware of how this works, but Greg and I are sitting here in a glass-enclosed van, mm -hmm. which is parked on Capitol Hill in front of Dick's Hamburgers, and everything we say is being projected on a television screen that's visible to the public, and I think there are loudspeakers out there projecting what's that's going right. on. That's right. So what we are is we're sort of circus animals in a glass cage here. Very um, hot cage, Well, the too, people <laughs> are out there wandering by, looking in and saying, what the hell's going on in there? <laughs> it's a very science fictional setup. Oh, and, and don't forget, we're streaming it live over yeah, the internet. So uh, and we're streaming it live over the internet. Yeah, it's kind of like a sociological experiment to see yes. uh, <laughs> if uh, we can be driven crazy. From I thing. have to say, I've never conducted an interview like this before. <laughs> Thank you. That uh, really pleases me. This is the most science fictional setup I have ever done for an interview. Oh, I <laughs> wish I could have had some of the video. You, you should really see what the, the, the um, production booth looks like up here. You'd probably <laughs> think it was like a spaceship <laughs> with all the screens and monitors and levers and knobs and buttons. Wow. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really happy with the way Darren has developed this show. Uh, we used to be in a studio down underground and uh, for a while we were on top of his house, uh, of his apartment complex. You know, we've been to a number of different locations. But this is the best setup we've got yet. And I'm really kind of uh, excited about the plans that he's been talking about in the future, which we will discuss. on, on Every uh, year on uh, Labor Day, I bring Darren up here and I, and I talk with him about the production of the show and what he does. And he's uh, he basically, he works for me, but at the same time, I'm working for him. Uh, it's kind of a, a, a weird kind of relationship we have. Um, a symbiosis. Yeah, it's, it very much <laughs> is. Speaking of, we have on our relationship about four minutes before we have to go. Oh, okay. And plus I owe Darren some money. <laughs> uh, money. 90%. Yeah. 90%. 90%. 90%. 90%. Oh, uh, Darren gets 100%. Of, uh, How come I don't get any money? Well, um, <laughs> because we're not David Letterman yet. <laughs> ah, okay. Yeah, once, once I start... Uh, Attracting a big audience, and uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you will. I will pay you. I'd be more than happy to. <laughs> this has been one of our best shows here. It's been very interesting talking to you about your characters. I got so many more questions. I'd love to ask, you know, especially about uh, uh, Princess Bells. Is that the name Prince of Prince of Morning Bells? The Princess first one. Uh, Prince of Morning Bells. Yeah. I'm sorry, I didn't get the title right. Now, how did the idea for this book? This was earlier in your career. Uh, it's a novella. It's a, it's a short one. but Well, it's two things. The style, which every single reviewer noted, is a pastiche of Peter Beagle, The Last Unicorn and A Fine and Private Place. Love that book. I think they're wonderful books. Yeah. And I was trying deliberately to create a Beagle-esque style because this is how beginners learn. You that try to write like the people that you admire. Yeah. yeah. And so that's where the style came from. The story is, in one sense, autobiographical even though I was only in my 30s when I wrote it. Because what it is is it's a person who's looking for the heart of the world, the meaning of life. And she tries um, science, she tries religion, she tries marriage, and none of them quite manage to create the meaning of life. Um, and I, if you have read the book, I'm not going to give away the ending, oh, but yeah, she and can. Tessie are looking for the heart of the world, the meaning of life. That's what I was and always have been doing. Wow. Who are, which writers affected you the most? I compared you with Roger Zelazny and your ability to get to the story and draw the Well, I'm flattered out of my little skull, but I have not read a lot of Zelazny. Yeah. I don't know if she's influenced me, but the writer that I admire the most in the field 
is Ursula K. Le Guin. I ah. think she walks okay. on water. Yeah. And I, if I could write like that, I would die a happy woman. Wow. Well, you know, I've read some of her stuff, and <laughs> you're going to find this surprising, but I think you're better than she is. Oh, no, wait. Yeah. You can't say that. You yeah. really can't. Well, it's my opinion, and I can say whatever I want to. <laughs> and, then, and that's the truth. Then let me just say you're okay. wrong. I don't usually <laughs> flatly contradict someone who's interviewing me, but in this case, you're wrong. Well, that's your opinion, and, and that's the, the great thing about America is the fact that we can have our own opinions and stuff. And, uh, and that's a wonderful way to, to end the show, uh, just uh, 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 expressing our opinions. And, uh, and I understand Ursula Gwynn is a good writer, and she has written some really good stuff. Uh, now, did she write? Uh, I'm I'm not sure if I got this right. She didn't write uh, the. Um, um, oh, I can't think of the name of the series right now. I don't think it was her. I'm thinking of somebody else. But that was another author that influenced me. But Ursula, is there anybody besides Ursula that uh, influenced you a lot? Well, a lot of writers have in different ways. Yeah. I, I've always read, and I read a lot of mainstream, um, too. My favorite author of all time is Jane Austen. Which okay. may be an odd choice for a science fiction writer. I did my master's work on Jane Austen. Oh, wow. And it's, um, yeah, that's telling a story and developing characters, and she's funny. Yeah. It, it takes a while sometimes to appreciate that funniness if you're really young, but she's screamingly funny. Yeah, yeah, well, uh, the, the one of the old masters, or mistresses, I guess, yeah. well, that doesn't sound right. Uh, a great writer, <laughs> let's yeah. put it that way. All uh, right. How, which male writer affected you the most? Somerset Maugham. Somerset Maugham. He's okay. underrated, and right now he's out of fashion. But again, um, of human bondage and razor's edge and um, cakes and ale and the moon and sixpence had a, a huge effect on how I thought about story and character. Okay, well, I'll, I'll go ahead and briefly say who I like. Mo Roger Zelazny, of course. Uh, Piers Anthony. Um, let's see, Roger Heinlein. Uh, uh, your husband, uh, uh, and he, he was really good. And I could think of a few others. And, of course, uh, C.S. Friedman, another female writer I like a lot. And, of course, you, Nancy <laughs> Press. You have had an effect on my writing style, and I well, appreciate it very much. Well, thank you, Greg, and thank you for having me on the show. I very much enjoyed it. I, I, this is like a dream I never knew I could have had. <laughs> I never had the idea. You I had a dream of sitting in a glass cage by Damburger, sweating while you were talking <laughs> to people and others were walking by uh, curiously? No, I had no idea this could <laughs> ever have happened. And believe me, if I'd had a dream like that, I would have included an air conditioner. <laughs> a strange universe indeed. We actually have an air conditioner what? in the back what? of the truck. <laughs> You've been holding out on us, Darren. <laughs> All right. Well, 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 it's the sun. You know, we didn't expect to have heat with it, too. Yeah, well, especially here in Seattle. But it's kind of nice to see that hot, glowing thing. What do you call that again? It's <laughs> like I've never seen that in the sky for a long time. That's my favorite joke. All right. Well, thank All you right. very much, folks. This has been the Multiversal News. And uh, thank you very much for being here. And uh, hope you enjoyed having Nancy Cress on here. Perhaps, maybe, if we're lucky, we'll have her on again when she's got a new book that, that she's going to be writing. All right, thank you very much, and have a great day in whatever universe you happen to live in.
I'm attorney Alexander Ransom. Have you been charged with a DUI or face any other criminal charges? If you're in trouble with the law, you need a trial attorney who's aggressive, experienced, and effective. Call today for a free consultation, the law offices of Alexander Ransom. I look forward to serving you and getting your criminal charges reduced or dismissed. Call today. The law offices of Alexander Ransom. Call today. Our systems will rock your world. <laughs> <laughs> 